we thank you that you have left us with such a marvelous, complete, and inerrant uh, revelation of yourself in this book we call the Bible. Lord, we remember that your name Jehovah means the self-existent one who reveals himself. And so we see through the ages that you have formed as to how you will deal with men at various times and in various circumstances that through your dealings with us, we see and learn the ways of God. And we also see that we are absolutely dependent upon you. For we do not approach you with anything in our hand, but we simply call and put forward our testimony that we are the redeemed by the cross of Jesus Christ. Blessed be your name forever. Glorify yourself, Lord God. May, may we be found not having lost our first love. And may you be glorified with us. And so, Lord, if we are to be blessed, it must come from you. And you are gracious. And you have said, come unto me, all you that are labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And so, Father, we know that salvation is of the Lord mm -hmm. and that it is, it is marvelous grace. Yes. And it, if we simply believe, will bring us to reflect the reality of the person of Jesus Christ, for we are his body in this earth. And we are called upon by faith to walk even as he walked. Bless these people that have come today. Meet, Lord, their needs. They're not one of them that isn't carrying some weight our multiplicity of weights. There's not one without some heartache. Yeah. And Father, Jesus said you will have trouble in this world. But let us remember the second part of his statement. Never fear, for I have overcome the world. And we rely on that, Lord. And know 
that you are the Alpha and the Omega and that your decrees will surely come to pass. We bless your name forever. You are our God and there is no other. And we love you, Lord, from the depth of our hearts. And we grow in that love as we simply seek your beautiful face. And so we pray these things, Lord, and adore you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. You know, just before I ask Mark to uh, play a song for us, I want to, you know, one would think after nearly 50 years of studying the Bible that um, we'd never see anything that we never really thought about. Uh, but I came across... Uh, a rather obscure uh, piece of scripture. It's found in 1 Corinthians 16 this week. And I was impressed. Uh, I was impressed by what it had to say that it was what I refer to as definitive scripture. That is, that when there are many questions about certain topics, sometimes simply a word from the Lord shows us what Paul was talking about when he said, don't let any man uh, draw you away from the simplicity that is in Christ. And we are all the time thinking in our own lives, trying to evaluate either ourselves and sometimes are confounded by what we see as the behavior of those who profess to know Christ. But I think verse 22 in chapter 16 of 1 Corinthians makes it so simple. In verse 22, very end of 2 Corinthians, where Paul says in 21, the salutation of me, Paul, with mine own hand. And then he says this, if any man love not the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be condemned. For the Lord is coming. Well, that, you know, that certainly has something to say regarding where we are headed as we went through that narrow gate and we walked that straight path that that which the Lord, beyond any kind of religious uh, paraphernalia that we surround ourselves with, regardless of the sacraments, regardless of what denomination we're involved with, 
regardless of how righteous we appear to other men, yet there is this one thing that is absolutely mandatory. If any man love not the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be anathema, maranatha, which means the Lord is coming. I remember when I first heard another Christian, it happened to be the man who led Alice and I to Christ many years ago. He would talk, talk about how he loved the Lord. And when he would refer sometimes to other Christians, he would say, Oh, they love the Lord. And we know that when Peter approached Christ, or actually I think Christ approached Peter after Christ was resurrected and Peter was still feeling the pain and the guilt of his denials the Lord called Peter and said, do you love me more than these? Yea, Lord, you know, I really care about you, was a fairly good translation of how Peter responded. And the Lord asked him that three times. And finally at the end, Peter said, yea, Lord, you know all things, and you know I'm kindly affectioned towards you, which is a word that is one step below what true love is. And I remember that in the midst of one of Peter's uh, often um, difficulties in speaking before the Lord when Peter rebuked Christ because Christ said that he had before him suffering and a cross and Peter would have none of it. And the Lord said, get behind me, Satan, for thou savorest not the things of God, but of men. But then the Lord said this, but I have prayed for you. Mm -hmm. And when you are converted, now that's something to think about. When you are converted, feed my sheep. And so despite all that we might do, which we call worship or which we call religion or which we look to, to prove that we are 
great adherence of Christianity, strip all of those away, and yet, and the Lord will do this, and yet we will find that either the Lord is the apple of our eye and that the Lord is our focus moment by moment and that we are filled with love for him because we loved him because he first loved us and he shed his love abroad in our hearts. I only give back to God what he already allowed me to give. Mm -hmm. And so it is that we must consider way back that first commandment, which is not included in the Decalogue or in the 10. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy mind, and with all thy strength. And with that, I think I'll ask Mark, before I start in chapter 25 of Isaiah, to minister to us, Mark. We're always glad to have you in music. Here we go. Can you hear me? We hear you, Mark. Okay. How deep the Father's love for us. How that's beyond all that he should give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. How great the pain of searing loss. The father turns his face as wounds which mother chosen ones bring many sons to glory. Behold the man upon the cross, my sin upon his shoulders, ashamed I know that it is 
so much mark um mark while you were singing that i i couldn't help but thinking i think and try to grasp the father as a spectator to the crucifixion and i thought of what i knew regarding what, what that crucifixion meant to, to his father. And I'm sure there's much more than one point, but I wanna to read to you in Isaiah 53 and verse 10 and 11. And here's what it says. Yet, he's talking about the crucifixion, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He, that is almighty God, hath put him to grief when thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin. He shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days. And the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Referring to Christ. He, that meaning the Father, he shall see the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. Now, my friends, in those verses, uh, particularly in, uh, I believe it's chapter three of Romans and First John 2, we see the word propitiation and the easiest and most straightforward way to you think for you to think about that word is it means satisfaction. And we must carry with us the understanding because often we are tempted to think that there is something that we need to add to what Christ has done. But the answer is 
there's not one thing we can add. The answer is that in the cross, by the travail of the soul of our Lord Jesus Christ, as he suffered such, such great contradiction of men against him, in that being part and parcel of the judgment of God towards that was, was uh, deserved by the whole world, that God, when it was over, was absolutely satisfied. And this is why we know that Romans 8.1 tells us there is now therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Mm -hmm. Why? Because it would be unjust for Almighty God to bring retribution for sin when it has already been satisfied by Jesus Christ. This is why we are free. This is why our sins are forgiven. And there's so much more about what was done on the cross. But the propitiation, the satisfaction, as God saw the travail of his soul, moves me to more fully understand what is the nature of substitutionary sacrifice. Now I'd like to direct you to chapter 25. Uh, you know, chapters uh, 24 through 27 of Isaiah are, are said by some are called the little apocalypse. In other words, there's so many things that comes forward in those four chapters that we also find in the book of Revelation. And of course, the true name of Revelation is the apocalypse, which means, contrary to what most men in the earth think, is the word apocalypse means the unveiling. And so Revelation is the unveiling of Christ when he comes in glory and to do all that must be done to bring an end to sin in the universe and to destroy his enemies and to chastise his people. And so in chapter 25, verse 1, and I'll just read through these. Remember, um, I, I can't I can't spend a lot of time on each verse or we'll be 10 years from now getting done with Isaiah. 
but we're picking out the high points. Chapter 25, verse 1, O Lord, thou art my God. I will exalt thee. I will praise thy name, for thou hast done wonderful things. Thy counsels of old are faithfulness and truth, for thou hast made a city a heap of a defended city, a ruin, a palace of strangers to be no city. It shall never be built. Therefore shall the strong people glorify thee. The city of the terrible nation shall fear thee. Remember, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. For thou hast been a strength to the poor, a strength to the needy in his distress, a refuge from the storm, a shadow from the heat, when the blast of the terrible ones is, a, is as a storm against the wall. Thou shalt bring down the noise of strangers as the heat in a dry place, even the heat with the shadow of a cloud, the branch of the terrible ones shall be brought low. That's pretty easy to understand that the Lord is referring to the judgment of Israel's enemies, as well as the judgment of the nations of the Gentiles uh, in that tribulation period. Now, in the next verse, six, we're going to see the word mountain, and so we need to know what it means. Many times in the Old Testament, the term mountain, just like uh, we find the term uh, that many, many of God's uh, enemies in the last day will lift up horns, uh, which is a symbol of power. So is the term or the word mountain uh, a, a synonym, if you would, for uh, a powerful nation. And so uh, in this mountain shall the Lord of hosts make unto all people a feast of fat things, a feast of wine on the leaves of fat things, full of marrow of wines on the leaves, well refined. And he will destroy in this mountain the face of the covering cast over all people and the veil that is spread over all nations. What on earth is he talking about in verse 7? Well, if we read verse 8, we get a hint of what's being discussed in verse seven, this mountain, the face of the covering cast over all people is the shroud of death, is uh, the veil that every man apart from 
a rapture shall have to face the death of the body and that this has been over the ages one of man's greatest fears and one of the things that men have tried to fill their lives with every distraction uh you know that that thing like eat drink and be merry for tomorrow you shall die i've often wondered that when people who thought that died how pleasure how much pleasure did they get in their minds in eternity for the fact that millions of years ago they had a small slice of the universe whereby they had fun um and so men have been afraid of death uh, and of course believers uh because of the work of jesus christ should give death no thought for we shall never die and jesus christ said that whosoever believeth in me shall never die and he who believes in me though he were dead he shall live and so we are not uh, those who will be covered with the shroud of death but those outside will fear it and will experience it and once it comes the word of the lord says is appointed to men once to die and then the judgment now familiar words to me anyway in verse 8 he that is almighty god will swallow up death in victory and the Lord God will wipe away all tears from off all faces and the rebuke of his people shall he take away from off the earth. For the Lord has spoken it. Well, my mind immediately goes to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, where uh, the Lord speaking through Paul says, Oh, death, where is thy victory? No. Oh, oh, oh death, where is? Well, I'm going to have to turn to it. Once I miss a word, it's over. Yes, there, there's the word I got wrong, sting. Oh, death, where is thy sting? Oh, grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, some of you may, may have never heard me talk about uh, 
the effect of law upon the fleshly man. And I would direct your attention, that's verse 56 of 1 Corinthians 15, and read that verse and ask yourself the question, and this, which says, the strength of sin is the law. And there is an answer for that. And you're welcome to call me about it, but the scripture speaks of it over and over again. For we know that the only thing the law can do is call for condemnation. And we know that the purpose of law is to make sin exceedingly sinful, but never to help uh, anyone to free themselves from the bondage of sin. And so verse eight, back in chapter 25 of Isaiah, he will swallow up death in victory. The Lord God will wipe away tears and rebuke of the people shall he take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken it, and it shall be said in that day, lo, this is our God. We have waited for him. Now, I don't believe this is referring uh, to the blessed hope that every Christian has. The blessed hope is that we believe that Christ will come in the air and take us out of this earth, and at that very moment in the twinkling of an eye, we shall all be changed. We shall receive a spiritual body as opposed to the shedding off of the body of flesh, and we will become just like Jesus Christ. But that is not what, what is being discussed here. This is talking about the hope of Israel. This is talking about uh, there, and of course it has been uh, and still is, their great failure that they missed the Lord coming and they crucified him. And today, since uh, the time of Christ, there has been a veil over the eyes of God's chosen people, that is Israel. And uh, if you want to check it out, you go to Jeremiah 31, and you can read about, and at the last chapters of the book of Zechariah and many other places, you can read about what happens when Christ comes the second time, for then their waiting will be over, uh, and he will bring them into salvation by his sovereign grace. And it shall be said, verse 9, 
in that day, lo, this is our God. We have waited for him, and he will save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. He, we will be glad and rejoice in his salvation. For in this mountain shall the hand of the Lord rest. Now, what's being referred to here in verse 10 is the millennial kingdom where Christ will actually sit on the throne and rule the earth for a thousand years with a rod of iron, um, and then other things will take place. And so uh, one of Israel's traditional enemies, Moab, uh, is going to be judged in that time, according to verse 10. And he, that is the Lord, shall spread forth his hands in the midst of them, that is the enemies, particularly Moab. And as he that swimmeth spreadeth forth his hands to swim, he shall bring down their pride together with the spoils of their hands. How many times have I spoken about pride. And I've told you, I remember that time when once teaching a Sunday night study, I made a statement, I hate my pride, uh, in which I do. Today, I hate it. My pride is my enemy, and I should have none of it. Uh, but we are called to take upon ourselves the humility of Christ. But boy, what a hubbub that brought about in that study, because people just thought that being proud of themselves was uh, a mark of uh, great attainment. Verse 12, and the fortress of the high fort of thy walls shall he bring down, that is the walls of his enemies. Lay low and bring to the ground even to the dust. Okay, now we move into chapter 26, uh, which also has some very interesting uh, pieces of scripture for us. In that day shall this song be sung in the land of Judah. We will have a strong city. You know, I didn't mention to you that Isaiah, uh, a lot of this, if we read it in Hebrew, we would find it's poetry. And Isaiah was one of the most expressive uh, and uh, uh, very skilled individual wordsmith uh, that is found in all the Bible. And that is why some of the verses seem a little strange because they were written as poetry, as was many of the Psalms. And so in that day, this song shall be sung in the land of Judah. We will have a strong city. Salvation will God appoint for walls and bulwarks. Open ye the gates 
that the righteous nation with which keepeth the truth may enter in. Thou will keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusted in thee. Trust ye the Lord forever, for in the Lord Jehovah is everlasting strength. And what we just read was that uh, there's coming a time when Israel is not going to fear any enemy. More than that, uh, and it's imperative, I think, that you know that Jerusalem is going to be the center of the universe, that Christ will have a literal throne in Jerusalem, whereby he will judge the nations for a thousand years, and many people will come to Jerusalem to worship before him. And, uh, you know, the amount of people who will live in Israel will be uh, many, many times what it is today. And everybody on earth will want to visit the place. And they can do it without fear. For he bringeth down them that dwell on high, verse 5. The lofty city, he layeth it low. He layeth it low even to the ground. He bringeth even it to the dust, referring to Israel's enemies. The foot shall tread it down. Even the feet of the poor and the steps of the needy, the way of the just is uprightness. Thou, most upright, dost weigh the path of the just. Sounds like a song. Yea, in the way of thy judgments, O Lord, have we waited for thee. The desire of our soul is to thy name. This will describe the heart of the people of Israel. And again, you, you need to turn to Psalm 31 and see what God is going to do corporately with all of those people at the time Christ descends in his second coming. Verse 9. With my soul have I desired thee in the night. Yea, with my spirit within me will I seek thee early. For when thy judgments are in the earth, the inhabitants of the world will learn righteousness. And if you have forgotten, I will remind you that in the book of Revelation, the apocalypse, we find midway through that God will send an angel flying around the whole world over and over, preaching the everlasting gospel, the everlasting gospel. A um, lot to be said about that. Uh, and so, God's judgments, according to verse 9, 
through Christ are in the earth. And finally, at the time we are reading about, after 3,500 years, for God, when he formed Israel and he took them out of Egypt, his plan for them is that they would be a special people and that every nation in the earth could look at Israel as a nation and say, what is it about Israel? Those people are not like any other people. Those people not only have been prosperous, but those people are kind to strangers. Those people do not make war. Those people love their God. Those people demonstrate the righteousness of God in the way they live. And that, that is why in the Gospel of Matthew, in the Sermon on the Mount, we find uh, Matthew saying, or the Lord actually, in the Sermon on the Mount, saying, you are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. But the problem is, that's what they were supposed to be, but the light got put under a bushel, and the salt was contaminated whereby it lost its saltiness. And Israel never, ever were the nation in the earth that God enabled them to be because they were always thinking about themselves. They did not give glory to God, but they bowed down into with idols that they made with their own hands. They did not consider the Lord as their strength but they took everything into their own hands. They were willful, and they were not dependent upon the Lord. And therefore, they lost the capacity of and purpose. They, they had no longer the ability as, they, as deeper and deeper they sank into self. They lost their ability to be a witness and a light to the world. But that will change. And that's what this verse has just told us. Verse 9, I seek thee early, for when thy judgments are in the earth, the inhabitants of the world will learn righteousness. That's why they were there. But I tell you, the day will come when they will demonstrate that righteousness. In Jeremiah 31, 31 says that in Israel, nobody will go to another Israelite and say, know the Lord. 
In other words, they won't have to be evangelizing one another. For every man will know him from the least of them to the greatest. And that is the new covenant that God will implement for Israel the moment the Lord Jesus Christ shows himself out of heaven and defeats the armies of the Antichrist and sets up his rule in the earth. Much more we could say about that, but that's the, the broad brush. Okay, verse 10. Let favor be showed to the wicked, yet will he not learn righteousness in the land of uprightness Will he deal unjustly and will not behold the majesty of the Lord? Lord, when thy hand is lifted up, they will not see, but they shall see and be ashamed for their envy at the people. Yea, the fire of thine enemies shall devour them. This is a discussion of all of the woe that comes upon Israel from uh, even from the very beginning, but principally starting with the Assyrian invasion in 722 BC and then the Babylonian invasion in 606 BC. And uh, then I'll just throw in the destruction of the whole nation and the temple and the golden city of Jerusalem in 70 AD. They will be destroyed utterly and will no longer even have a name or a nation in the earth because the Lord will be ashamed to call them his people. And the fire of thine enemies shall devour them. And why? Because they had over their eyes the veil of blindness. And principally, if you go to, I believe it's 1 Corinthians 3, you will find that Jesus Christ himself, who came to his own, his own received him not, and he began to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand in the book of Matthew. He came to them and he found that there was yet a veil over their face and particularly the religious leaders and the rulers, and when getting to Matthew chapter 13, which is the beginning of, uh, pardon me, beginning with Matthew chapter 5, going through chapter 7, which is the Sermon on the Mount, the Lord Jesus explained to uh, Israel that 
there was no way they were in any condition to receive the, the kingdom of heaven. And then in Matthew 13, he told us that he spoke to them in parables because they in that way would not see and would not hear. Why? Because God had already decided to bring judgment. And that judgment has been going on now since the time of Christ or 70 AD, if you want to mark it that way, that judgment of blindness. Remember, no man comes unless their father draws him. All God has to do is cut off his drawing power and cause a veil of darkness to go over the face of men in the earth and harden their hearts as he hardened Pharaoh's hearts. And as he hardened the hearts of the wicked in Romans chapter one, read it and see, then the Lord will keep that blindness over the eyes of Israel until that time referred to in the Old Testament as Jacob's trouble shall come. And that is the seven years of tribulation. And as I've often told you, there's two reasons for the tribulation period primarily. The most important reason is first to bring Israel into great uh, anguish and great persecution, whereby at the end of it, they will be ready to turn away from their own labors and to receive their Messiah. Secondly, the purpose of the tribulation period is that God will judge the Gentile nations in the earth and he will basically demonstrate to all those nations what he thinks about their prideful uh, dispositions as to how great they are. And he will bring them low. And therefore, people that are Gentiles, some of them will be brought to the place where they can also enter in to that millennial kingdom. Okay. Verse 11, chapter 26 of Isaiah. Lord, when thy hand is lifted up, they will not see. This just continues what I was saying. But they shall see and be ashamed for their envy at the people. Yea, the fire of thine enemies shall devour them. Lord, thou wilt ordain peace for us, for thou also hast wrought all of our works in us. O Lord God, O Lord our God, other lords beside thee have had dominion over us, but by thee only will we make mention of thy name. They are dead, and they shall not live. They are deceased, 
and they shall not rise. Therefore hast thou visited and destroyed them and make all their memory to perish. And so Lord, the Lord's going to make Israel to basically become a non-entity in the earth. And they were that until 1948. And take a look at what God has done and tell me that God is not about to fulfill all his prophecies regarding that nation at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's never been a nation like Israel. Thou hast increased the nation, O Lord. Thou hast increased the nation. Thou art glorified. Thou hast removed it far unto all the ends of the earth. Lord, in trouble have they visited thee. They poured out a player, oh, pardon me, a prayer when thou when thy chastening was upon them. Like a woman with child that draweth near the time of her delivery is in pain and crieth out in her pangs, so, so shall we, so, pardon me, so have we been in thy sight, O Lord. We have been with child. We have been in pain. We have, as it were, brought forth wind. We have not wrought any deliverance in the earth. Neither have the inhabitants of the world fallen. In other words, Israel's failed. Thy dead men shall live. The dead bodies and I'm bringing the proper translation of that verse, the dead bodies shall they arise and sing, you that dwell in the dust, for thy dew is as the dew of the herbs, and the earth shall cast out the dead. Okay. Well, here we have verses that talk about Israel as a woman. Does anybody remember where in Revelation Israel is talked about as if they were a woman? For example, in, uh, I believe it's Revelation chapter 12, Oops. Just a moment, I'll have to get there. Revelation 12. And there appeared a great wonder in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon 
under her feet and upon her head a crown of seven stars. And she being with child cried, travailing in birth and pain to be delivered. And there appeared another wonder in heaven and behold a great red dragon having seven heads and 10 horns and seven crowns upon his heads and his tail drew the third part of the stars of heaven and did cast them to the earth and the dragon stood before the woman which was ready to be delivered for to devour her child as soon as it was born. And she brought forth a man child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron and her child was caught up to God and the woman fled into the wilderness where she hath a place prepared of God that they should feed her there a thousand Two hundred and three score days. That is three and a half years. Half of the half that is during what is called the Great Tribulation. Now, here's the difference between the woman talked about in Isaiah 26 and the woman talked about in uh, Revelation 12. For one thing, the woman is Israel in both cases, but uh, the child that is referred to in Revelation chapter 12 is Jesus Christ himself. Whereas uh, verses 17 through 19 of Rome, uh, pardon me, of Isaiah 26 are referring to uh, the stress and the journey that Israel has gone through and will go through until the time when all that testing will be over and the dead bodies shall arise. Now, I could take you to Revelation 20, uh, and we would talk about the fact that at the at the end of the tribulation period, there will be a resurrection of Old Testament saints. I could take you to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and we'd talk about the, the rapture and the resurrection of all the New Testament saints. And then we could find at the very end of Revelation, this third resurrection. By the way, the first two resurrections I mentioned are really part of what God calls the first resurrection. But the third resurrection, which is a resurrection unto death, is at the end of Revelation and all the people that are resurrected at that time are resurrected to stand before the great white throne and be judged by Almighty God. And to the person that is there, each one and the whole will be cast into the lake of fire where the flames are never quenched and the worm never dies. 
That's a little interesting to me that as I'm in chapter 26 of Isaiah, that verses 20 and 21 talk about God providing a place for Israel, a place of safety during the tribulation period. And if we would go back to Revelation 12, we will find, um, let's see, verse 6, Revelation 12, 6, the woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared of God that they should feed uh, her there a thousand two hundred three score years. That's the last half of the tribulation period. God is going to make a special refuge. Many people think that it is down in what is used to be Edom uh, in uh, uh, what's the uh, valley? Well, there's a particular valley uh uh, called Petra, the place Petra, uh, which means uh, stone. Uh, it's just carved right out of the rock. And many people think that Israel is going to be led down there and escape, many of them, the destruction and loss of life that would come at the hands of the Antichrist, who halfway through the tribulation will declare war on Israel and destroy as many of them as he can. And so there's a place of refuge. Uh, reminds me of Miss Betty's verse, uh, those who dwell in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. Verse 20, chapter 26, come my people, Enter thou into my chambers, shut thy doors about thee, hide thyself as it were for a little moment until the indignation be overpassed. For behold, the Lord cometh out of his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. The earth also shall disclose her blood and shall no more cover her slain. I tell you, I really have very little doubt that what's being discussed in 20 and 21 is the same thing it's being discussed in Revelation chapter 12, verse 6. Uh, and so we find uh, that which Missler always says, that the Old Testament is the New Testament concealed and that the New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. And so uh, I have not mentioned all the scriptures that we find uh, quoted in the New Testament, but uh, a lot of what Isaiah and all the other prophets had to say ended up being quoted by the Lord Jesus Christ, are the apostles, uh, giving credence to the fact that uh, Jesus Christ himself uh, 
looked at these scriptures as absolutely the word of God and that not one of them could ever be broken. And so uh, I continually am amazed because the time separation between Isaiah and Christ was, was uh, you know, 600 years. And the time between uh, the writing of Isaiah and where we live just before the coming of that terrible day, the day of the Lord, uh, that, that's a period of, of uh, over 2,500 years. But to the Lord, he sees them all the same. A day, a year, a millennium, an eternity. God is the Alpha and the Omega, and he is not bound by time. And his will surely will be done. Mm -hmm. Glory mm -hmm. to his name. Mm -hmm. Well, I don't have time to go into chapter 27, but we will take care of that. Uh, you know, when you think about Isaiah, you have to you have to understand Isaiah prophesied and probably took his notes and wrote this book uh, with 50 years of experience uh, and probably writing down when God revealed these things to him over a period of 50 years. And so we can kind of get an idea that it's not like Isaiah sat down and wrote this in, uh, in a year. And therefore, we find that the prophecies, uh, almost unlike any other scripture, although there are some that rival it, that the prophecies of Isaiah are very comprehensive. And that the Lord spoke to him about many things. And one of the, 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 the jobs that we have to do when teaching Isaiah is to be able to discern who's being talk, talked about, what does it mean is it fulfilled yet, or is it awaiting a future fulfillment? And what does it mean for you and I? And we are going to get to some amazing passages in a few weeks from now. All right, let's all have a word of prayer together. Thank you very much for listening. Uh, I was pleased I was able to get through two chapters. And so uh, I'll give myself an attaboy. Let's pray. 
Father, thank you for each one that's come to hear your word. Lord, we are in awe. And we understand why you have said that fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. May we not be of those who trifle with the weighty subjects that we find in this book. May, dear Lord, we know that Jesus Christ is alive in the word. For he said, and John said, that the word became flesh. And at the time of that writing, much of the word of the New Testament was either very new or yet some to be written. Lord, you have said that all of this in the Old Testament is given for our benefit, 1 Corinthians 10. May, may we profit. May there not be a veil over our eyes. May we understand that if we live to be a ripe old age, that whatever we have done towards self, whatever, in whatever way we have lifted ourselves up in this little slice of eternity that it it has from self-effort no value to you and therefore is simply burned away but lord all that we do in faith shall echo in eternity. Thank you, Lord. Bless each one today. These people, Lord, who have listened, these people who desire to be formed into the image of Christ. And may, as they hunger and thirst after that righteousness, may they be filled. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Thank